Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and this is The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas in this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be exploring uh, the topic of digital dollars. Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about digital dollars on the show, digital dollar stablecoins, digital currency. And stablecoins have obviously captured the imaginations of central bankers, technology companies, and others. So the power and efficiency of these digital versions of local currencies on blockchains and the promise of a more transparent and accessible financial system have led nearly every central bank on the planet to launch some form of central bank digital currency initiative. Now, while most of these efforts have focused on research, planning, proposals, private sector stablecoins have been in the market for years and have seen incredible growth, most notably in the last year. From trade finance to remittances to cross-border business payments, digital dollar stablecoins have seen the fastest growth as macro conditions accelerate dollarization across the globe. USDC itself has rocketed to nearly $3 billion in circulation and is growing at an astounding rate. With China's central bank digital currency beginning to roll out and the imminent launch of Facebook's Libra payments network, increased attention on Capitol Hill around the distribution of aid and financial inclusion, digital dollar initiatives at the Fed are also in the spotlight. To help unpack uh, these topics and examine this intersection between central bank efforts and private sector digital dollar efforts, we're joined this week by Christopher Giancarlo, director of the Digital Dollar Project, a partnership between Accenture and the Digital Dollar Foundation that's focused on advancing the exploration of a United States central bank digital currency. Chris is senior counsel uh, to the law firm Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher and the former chairman of the US Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Welcome, Chris. It's great to uh, have you here today to be with you too, Jeremy. It's great to have you be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. So, um, well, look, there's so much uh, to talk about and, and we could easily fill hours with that. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna do our best to, to have a, a, a solid conversation on a lot of topics, but I, I like to start obviously just to hear a little bit about your own journey into crypto specifically and, and all these ideas uh, there, you've, you've got uh, uh, some really interesting history there. And I think just great for the audience uh, to quickly hear that. Oh, great. I mean, you know, so many people's stories of how they've come to crypto are fascinating. My, my own journey began when I joined the commission in, in 2014 and started meeting with some uh, people active in the space, including uh, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss and, and others. Uh, that were advocating for um, you know a good relationship with regulators and were getting to see us early, but really uh, it took off for me in 2017 um, when I became chairman of the agency, and we had an enormous run up in the the the, the value of Bitcoin, and uh, at the same time we were approached by two of our leading exchanges, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, to launch Bitcoin futures uh, as a regulated product. And um, it was remarkable, uh, the, the pressure on the agency not to allow Bitcoin futures to launch. I mean, uh, one entrepreneur took out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal 
addressed to me personally, lambasted me for even considering the launch of Bitcoin futures. In fact, his platform turned out to be one of the biggest market makers in Bitcoin futures uh, a few months later. But uh, look, everybody comes to it with their own point of view. We felt it was the right thing to do based upon a simple, uh, not simple, but based upon a thorough reading of our own statutes. And I won't go into explanation of how the self-certification process works other than to say, uh, we, we believe we made the right decision not to block Bitcoin futures. And I think as a result of that decision, um, uh, crypto assets today have established themselves as a, uh, as, an, as, a, as a bona fide asset class alongside other bona fide asset classes in, in the financial landscape. And I think a lot do, has to do with the CFTC's yeah. decision not to block it and to move forward. Yeah, it was landmark. I, I was asked uh, in, a, in an AMA last week, a former guest, Larry Summers, asked, at what point in time will it be uh, more likely that someone does not have crypto in their portfolio than, than having it in their portfolio? And my guess was, was two to three years. But um, yeah. I, I think that the transformation and in, in, in your involvement there is, is obviously was really noteworthy. Well, other agencies were not so inclined. It was it happened at the CFTC, and I think the agency has a historical uh, reputation for innovation. And I think this is one case where that uh, reputation and, and 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 history really came to bear in a way that I think has been ultimately beneficial. Absolutely. So I think I remember the first time we met in in your office, and and I think it was uh, at the tail end of your service, and. Um, and I was talking a little bit about what we're up to at Circle and, and, and USDC was very early um, at, at that point. Um, but I, I, I think um, you're now, I, I think, you know, focused on, on very significant, very strategic issues in, in this area. And, and, and I'd love to hear as well, sort of what, you know, when did you have your aha moment about digital dollars and about digital currency with respect to the dollar? And, and really, uh, we'll talk about the project as well, but just sort of what was that moment for you? Well, it actually wasn't the, the Bitcoin futures moment. It really was a, it was sort of like a, a broad observation that built over my five years in government service. And it was an observation that, you know, Jeremy, uh, in the United States and, and in, in the West, you look around us and you see our obsolete um, infrastructure of bridges and tunnels and airports and, and, and mass transportation systems that were state-of-the-art in the last century are increasingly obsolete in the 21st century. Sadly, the same is true, and I've talked about this in a number of years, same is true about a lot of our financial market infrastructure, yeah. systems for payment and settlement, and foreign exchange, but also the financial market regulatory infrastructure as well. I mean, the yeah. statutes for the CFTC and the SEC were laid out in the 1930s. Right. We're coming on a hundred year anniversary of, of structures that were durable, clearly, but they were built for an analog human to human world, not for a, a digital algo driven, driven and increasingly tokenized and decentralized world. Yeah. And my next observation, and we saw it at the CFTC, is this coming wave of the internet, this, this wave of the, of the internet of value. You know, the first wave of the internet of information took place in a regulatory light zone because we've long, based on our First Amendment and general principles of jurisprudence in the West, considered to be speech to be something that is free and not subject to government oversight. But when it comes to things of value, governments have long presumed to right. have authority and jurisdiction. You know, we have not just one, but two market regulators. We have three or four banking regulators, and that's just at the national level before we even get to the state level. 
governments in our Western system have long presumed to arbitrate um, in matters of things of value. So the lessons that we learned in the first wave of the internet about, about uh, don't ask permission, ask forgiveness, or you know, you're not trying hard enough, you're not breaking things, is going to have to be tempered a bit in this new wave of the internet when you're going to run when that's going to run smack into government entities built up to moderate and, and, and modulate things of value. And that brings me to my third observation, which is that this wave of the internet is going to run crashing headlong into this obsolete regulatory structure. It is right it, now. <laughs> it is right now. And so what do we do? We either do nothing, in which case innovation and development is going to take place elsewhere and it's going to be stymied yeah. in the United States. Or, you know, like, like a mighty wind, instead of trying to get blown, allowing ourselves to be blown over by it, let's hitch a sail to it and ride it. And I think there's a huge opportunity to ride this wave to both modernize our infrastructure, which needs to be modernized, but also to move forward into a new era where I think, yeah. once again, uh, our, our core principles, yeah. freedom of speech, uh, uh, free enterprise, uh, degrees of yeah. privacy can be integrated into this new technology right. for, for the betterment of ourselves and, and, and I think for the rest of the world. Yeah. And that's yeah. a choice I think we fundamentally have to make now. Yeah, no, we're 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 right on the precipice of that. I, I really your your context is uh, I have a lot of shared beliefs there, of course, and um, uh, you know I, I was very involved in the first waves of the internet, and you know there's that period of time in the you know the mid '90s when you know really you had these large established industries and regulators that oversaw you know the airwaves that oversaw who who could have who could who could uh, spread their voice to an audience of people in the world. And this was all over the world, not just in the US. It was sort of, and you had, uh, you know, monopolies, state controlled monopolies, you had private sector, you know, kind of controlled infrastructure. And, you know, the, there was, I think, bold policy actions that were taken in 1996, 1997, very bold policy actions that sort of said, we're gonna, we're gonna create structures for this to grow and flourish and, you know, I, I think um, very few people would look back on that and say that was a bad idea. There's stuff that we've seen, you know, un uncontrolled, unfettered have, have, have created new centralization problems, actually, which, which we're now responding to, centralized platforms, things like that. But um, that, that, that kind of visceral idea of the internet slamming up against the government-run and administered uh, monetary system or this hybrid uh, uh, is, is very real. Um, and there's, you know, Tr tremendous need to walk our way through that and make sure we're on the right side of what this enables for people everywhere. Indeed. Um, so, um, so you started the Digital Dollar Project. It, it sounds like a lot of inspiration around this and this desire to, uh, you know, see make make sure that the United States gets this right, that we have the right level of attention on this problem. That it, this isn't just something where you know China or, or whomever kind of has a runaway success doing this further faster, um, but maybe just talk a little bit about you know the genesis of the project and um, and and what you're envisioning from that. Sure. So nowhere is this clash between antiquated structure infrastructure, financial market infrastructure, and this new Internet of Value going to be more acute than in the area of money. And it's already happening. Um, uh, Sir John Cunliffe, who's the deputy governor of the Bank of England and became a good friend over the last few years, once uh, said to me not too long ago, he said, you know, Chris, it seems like every several generations, society once again asks itself the question, 
what is money and starts rethinking that. You know, money is, we think of it as a government construct, but right. it's really not. If you look right. through history, money is much more of a societal construct and government has a big role to play, yeah. but, and we're seeing it right now. Society is reformulating their thinking about money while government is actually sort of a dollar late, a day late and a dollar short to use a pun on, uh, on the notion of money. And, and, um, and so society is going to move forward in reconsidering money. And unless government catches up to that, it's going to be another evidence of this, of this antiquated financial market infrastructure running headlong. And so, so in order to um, really uh, in, uh, uh, bring some, some I think, a, a really broad debate to bear, I formed the Digital Dollar Project at the beginning of the year, first formed a non-for-profit foundation with my brother, who's a, a renowned Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and Daniel Gorfine, who's the former chief innovation officer at the CFTC. And then we teamed up with, with Accenture on a pro bono basis. And so the Digital Dollar Project is not a commercial venture. It's a non-for-profit think tank. And its, and its purpose is to both stimulate the conversation bring a broad body of perspectives to bear, and then ultimately drive toward real exploration through a series of public sector, private sector, partnership pilot programs. So as I mentioned, we built a, a wonderful advisory board of uh, 40 experts in the field from across the gamut, all in their own right, not as part of their, their firms they belong to, but speaking on their own behalf across the political spectrum, across the technological spectrum. Um, and, and we really believe that if, if the United States is going to do this, it needs to do it through its, its traditional approach to big technology innovation, which has always been a partnership between the private sector and the public sector. Whether it's putting a man on the moon or building the internet, the United States always does big things working together. And, 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 and Chairman Powell, uh, not too long ago said this is so important that it needs to be done by basically federal workers. Well, uh, I, I have enormous respect for Chairman Powell, but on this point, I disagree. This is so important that it cannot be done by government workers alone. This is so important and needs to be done in a full-blown public and private partnership, the way we always do big things in the United States and, and the way we need to do this big thing now. Yeah. So we have, uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, critical timing for these, for the, for this work, uh, obviously. And, um, I've been a huge advocate, as you know, of, of, uh, kind of over the mid to long term, this concept of hybrid central bank digital currency, where you've got, you know, you know, leading private sector innovators that are building and advancing technology and standards and infrastructure to to really drive drive what's possible but working in close uh, partnership frankly with central banks uh, around the things that central banks are going to care the most about which is this 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 the soundness the security uh the oversight uh and, and really the under the underlying ability for for those institutions to continue to focus on their own core mandates of uh, whether it's full employment or or uh, economic growth or monetary stability, price stability, uh, etc. Monetary policy more more broadly, um, we we sort of have this this debate right, which is you know public private uh, you know different models in between. Um, you know, as you look at what's happening out in the marketplace today, there's a lot happening in the marketplace with with stablecoins. Uh, you know, you know projects like USDC. 
emerging stablecoins all around the world, in fact, and, and then the sort of the, the research that we know is going on throughout the Fed system and, and other places. What do you see emerging from all that, that, that milieu of, uh, of activity? So I, I use the analogy of the space program. You know, in the early days of the space program, the big decision to land a man on the moon was made. But a lot of the how do we do that had not yet been made. In fact, there was an early debate as to whether the core technology would be rocket technology or jet propulsion technology. And the decision was to go with rocket technology. But even that wasn't made when the core decision was, let's, let's land a man on the moon. Well, um, I feel the core decision should be the United States should experiment and be prepared to adopt a, a digital dollar, a central bank digital currency. And then we need to back up and say, okay, there are a number of ways to do that. What are some of the choices? And that's what we at the Digital Dollar Project in our initial white paper in May of this year, put forward what we called our champion model. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily the, the full pathway to get there, but it's a way for us all to get our minds around some of the core decisions and we put forward our best ideas working with our advisory board for a public discussion. So let me lay out for your audience some of the elements that we believe that we've said in our champion model, all of which are subject to a broader conversation. But to get the conversation started, we've posited a, uh, a, a central U.S. central bank digital currency that would first be token-based as opposed to accounts-based. Now that's a, a fundamental choice and we can talk about that, but we put a stake in the ground and we said token-based. Secondly, it should enjoy the full faith and credit of the US government in the same way that the dollar in your pocket does. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but that's a difference from say a stable coin, which may represent that, but because dollars are held in an account, this would sure. itself- it's sort of Stable coins today don't meet that full criteria, but theoretically in the future they could. Exactly right. So, so we're proposing the digital dollar would have the full faith and credit. We're also proposing it would be a, a third form of fiat money. So you'd have coins and cash. This would be a third form, a digital form. But it'd also be a third form of money being that you have fiat money, you have accounts-based money, and now we'd have a, a form of di a digital fiat money. Right. Um, we propose maintaining the two-tiered banking system in terms of how digital dollars are made available to the public. So you're, you're, some of your listeners, all of your listeners may know that right now fiat money is produced by the Federal Reserve, distributed through the Federal Reserve Bank system and then distributed onto commercial banks, which then make them available through ATM machines and at, at tellers. We would propose that digital dollars would be distributed initially in the same way, but then they'd flow out into the broader ecosystem of digital wallet providers and, and otherwise. We also propose a, a US central bank digital currency that is monetary policy neutral. We're not proposing an increase of the money supply, decrease, those are policy choices that are made by central bankers and governments worldwide. We don't propose any change in that being a, a policy choice. Not, we're not proposing this as a policy solution. And, and finally, for the major technological components of this, we believe that form should follow function or technology should follow design choices. And which is why um, we believe that a close partnership between the private sector and the public sector is so important because we need to know what policy choices are, are part of public policy that Congress 
uh, the administration, the central bank, deem important, and then the technology design should follow that. So those are just some of our, our core foundational ideas. Now, every one of them has a lot of detail and, and a lot of, of weeds to get into, but those are the big picture issues that we proposed in our, in our May white paper. Yeah. So I, I think, um, as, as we've talked about before in, in, in conversations, um, you know, we, we have, uh, we obviously have this incredible tradition in the West as well of, of technological innovation. You know, many of the greatest technology firms in the world are American companies. Um, there, there's a lot of great Chinese companies as well, but a lot of great American companies. And, um, you know, the, the pace of private sector innovation in particular in software powered industries, which is more or less becoming everything, including as we're seeing now, software is eating up the whole financial system. Um, you know, we, we went from a world uh, where, you know, people thought they used, uh, you know, AT&T was their communications company. Well, now, you know, Facebook is their communications company or Tencent is their communications company, depending on where you live and so on. And um, the private sector activity in this digital dollar space is also accelerating at a, at a really interesting pace. Now, on, on a relative scale, when we talk about the trillions of dollars that slosh around in the uh, electronic money system today, the numbers in, in the crypto space are quite small, but obviously we've, we've got a lot of vectors. Um, we've got a lot of organic growth and we have a lot of major, major firms, uh, giant internet companies, giant payments companies who are, are stepping in and getting involved in stable coins today, right? And so the next two to three years, let's just say, is a living laboratory of uh, technical innovation, market innovation, um, and um, you know many of the things that you outline as as potential uh, uh, principles um, around a, a, a federal government sponsored initiative or endorsed initiative. Some of those things may already be in the market, or, or and, and some already even are in the market to to different degrees. And so, how does that how does that come together? Leading private sector actors that are innovating in the market. I think it's not unreasonable to imagine in the next two to three years that there'll be two billion plus uh, people, three billion people potentially who have digital wallets using digital currency uh, on the internet using software um, before anything even emerges from the Fed. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting when we have our own way of doing things in America. You know, when China does big things, the, the order comes down from on high and it's driven down through the party leadership all the way down into their corporate structure and, and things happen because the, 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 the command has been given. That's not how we roll in the United States, for good and bad. I mean, if, you, if anybody had designed the way the internet, it done a schematic the way the internet rolled out and thought that they would have predicted it, it would have never happened. It was a big, messy, glorious explosion yeah. of creativity and innovation. And, and the Department of Defense had a role and, and DERPA had a, had a role, but so did some of the foundational companies like Netscape Navigator and private equity played a role. That's how we roll um, in the West. And quite frankly, there's nothing better when it works because it, its proof is in the pudding of what we've created. And so um, uh, the Fed has got a role here. Congress has a role in this, but so does 
circle. So, so does uh, um, uh, Ripple. So does um, uh, so many of the companies that are exploring this right now. And I'm not um, looking yeah, sure, to sure. brand identify other than to say that there's some really exciting experimentation going on. And that needs to continue. The feds, we, uh, the, the official sector needs to identify the big policy issues. That's what they do. That's what they're elected to do. That's their job. But the private sector is the one that can bring the creativity, the technological proficiency, the project uh, management skills. I, right. I ran a government agency. It's really hard to do big technology projects in government. We can't afford the best and the brightest people. We don't have consistent funding. We can't raise the kind of funding that's necessary. We don't have the big project management skills. Um, and so let's not pretend that government alone is good at doing big projects when in fact the evidence is we're really good at it in the private sector in the West. Let's bring those forces together and, 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 and drive this innovation um, in a way that reflects our core values as a society, but also reflects our, our innovativeness, our creativity, our, our drive and determination to do big things when we all come together. Yeah, that's, uh, it, makes, it makes a great deal of sense. Uh, speaking of innovation, um, I had a, a, a great conversation on the show with Brian Brooks, who's obviously, uh, uh, you know, uh, blazing a trail um, and, uh, and, and very, focused on many of these issues as well. And, and the, the phrase he used, uh, which I really liked was, um, you know, essentially, you know, we've got this leading reserve currency, uh, but in this, in this new world, like to, to maintain preeminence as a reserve currency, there are a lot of different things, but the currency needs more features. It's got to compete. Its utility value uh, needs to compete. And, you know, th there were features of, of, of old kinds of coins and notes and so on, but, you know, the, the features weren't that significant. Digital currency, wow, we're talking about real innovation in terms of the, the actual utility value of the, of the unit of account itself. And um, you know, wh what do you see as the breakthrough features? Like what are the features that the dollar needs? What, and what is it that you know, digital currency brings that, that, uh, that is transformative in that well, way? Here's a really interesting um, observation, uh, Jeremy, that the US dollar itself, it takes its name from the Spanish dollar. And the reason why they use that name is because the Spanish dollar was considered the most technologically advanced currency of its time. And let me, let me uh, just go back in history. During the 16th and century, the, uh, the 15th and 16th century exploration of the uh, uh, Eastern coast of uh, the, the New World, uh, there were multiple currencies in use during that time. I'm sorry, I said it should be the 17th and 18th century. There were multiple currencies in use during that time. There were British pounds, there were Dutch guilders, there were French francs. But the currency that, was, that, had a, that traded at a premium, that was considered the most attractive, was the Spanish dollar. And the reason is it had technological superiority over the other currencies. One, it was minted with new world silver, which was more consistently pure than old world silver and therefore used less alloy, making it more consistently valuable, making it also lighter, whether in one's pocket or one's trunk. Um, and the other thing is it was minted in such a way that it could be broken into eight equal pieces mm -hmm. known as pieces of eight, making it fractionable and fractionable meant it was more easily, easily right. utilized right. without having to make change. Right. Well, what are we facing in this COVID crisis? We don't have enough coins around, right? Mm -hmm. 
to make change. Well, if we had a digital dollar that was fractionalizable, if the cost of a uh, of a yeah. of a candy bar was yeah, fifty no, no three cents. Yeah, USDC goes to eight decimal places, so that's yeah. that's got divisibility. And 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 on some chains that were launched on, it's uh, one twentieth of a cent to uh, transact with it. So in, in in history, we know that a technological advantage that one currency may have over another makes it more attractive in global trade. Yeah. Well, let's think about the dollar. If it remains in an analog form as it currently is, and other countries and other economies develop a digital fractionalizable currency, how is the dollar going to continue to compete? It will continue to compete because it has other strengths, but are we, gonna, are, are we willing to forego yeah. technological modernization, which goes back to my first point. We haven't modernized our rail systems. We haven't modernized our airports and our roads. Is that gonna be the same attitude we take with our currency? And how long will we be a major global competitor if we don't have the courage yeah. and, and the gumption to say we need to modernize our currency with new technologies? It's, uh, it, raises, it, it's, it's a, it's, it raises some really big questions. And I, and I think um, as I, uh, you know, talk with um, not just regulators, but, but uh, leaders in the existing financial system, um, others, and, and, and so on, like this, this notion of like a, a token-based, uh, you know, digital unit of account, um, you know, in, and in, in cryptocurrency and, and, and in blockchains, we're talking about digital bearer assets. So just like a, a physical note is a bearer asset, yep. a digital token is a bearer asset, and we're talking about digital bearer assets that effectively, instantly, automatically exist everywhere that the internet exists at, the, at any moment in time. So if you've got a, an internet connection uh, at, the, at the space station, it, you know, it works there. It's, uh, as I call it, blockchains are intergalactic money. Um, and, but, but the bottom line is it exists everywhere the internet exists and it's a bearer instrument and that's profoundly powerful. And, um, you know, in the history of money, in the history of nation states, that's never existed. And this is just like a fundamental breakthrough innovation. And I think, um, you know, the, lots of different metaphors, the genie is out of the bottle, right? Um, the, the genie is out of the bottle in this um, non-sovereign digital currencies like Bitcoin have taken that genie out of the bottle as well. Uh, but that genie is out of the bottle. And I think it raises really profound questions for governments around the world. Um, and it raises, on the one hand, these very profound questions about national security, about um, how, uh, how law enforcement fights crime on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, around you know, human freedom, human rights, financial privacy, and then somewhere in the middle, breakthrough innovation, which is if you've got a bear, digital bearer asset and you can write code and it can be programmable on any device anywhere in the world, like, wow, what could you do with that? What could society, coming back to your society's ideas of money concept, what could society do with that? And so these are like really, I think, very, very profound questions. And um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on some of those, those dimensions sure. and how... Well you know, government should be thinking about this. So, so you, you know, you talked about uh, in a digital format, money becomes intergalactic. So it, it, in, in space, it becomes ubiquitous. You can use it. Whereas, whereas fiat money is basically a local utilization. You can't use fiat on, in an online context. Well, but let's really expand our mind. 
let's not just think about space, but let's think about time. Sure. If we go to a digital format that's ultimately programmable, we could actually program money to be used not just in our current time, yeah. but across time. So Absolutely. think about a, uh, I could today, if, if programmable money were available, whether that be stable coin or uh, a, a, a central bank digital currency, it could be programmed to benefit my children, my grandchildren, yeah. my great grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. I could program money today for use at other places in time. So the, the, it's the big breakthrough with the big idea here is we're creating money that can be used across space and across time. And that has never been possible. That is a big idea. And the United States has to be involved yeah, no, totally. in that big idea. It's too big for us to sit on the sidelines and let the development of this be done elsewhere. So that, that, that ties into, I think, a, 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 I think a key question. I think um, a lot of times the discussions on this, they get, they get kind of reduced down to, is this a payment system innovation issue? Or are we, just, are we really just talking about a, you know, a new uh, federal payment system? Um, and, I, and my view is that's an extremely narrow view of this. Um, and and, and uh, you know, in, in some ways, like the ability to settle payments uh, digitally over the internet, that's just gonna be as ubiquitous as email. And, and it's just, that's just gonna be the air we breathe. It'll be everywhere. And, that, and, and that's almost like a tiny, tiny issue here. Absolutely. That composability and programmability and, and I guess ultimately, you know, we have these, we have these blockchain networks and, and there's the diverse number of these, these public networks, just like the public internet, which is, you know, the World Wide Web is this public network, the internet email systems, this public network, no government controls those, no corporation controls those, they're just standards that are out there people can build on. And I think part of the attractiveness of of uh, you know fiat digital currencies and and what's contributing certainly to some of the growth in stablecoins today as well is that innovation that can happen there. The idea you had th there's actually a protocol called the Lock Protocol. It's an Ethereum smart contract. Anyone can can put their stablecoins through it and they can configure all kinds of locking rules on on money, and that's just out there. And you can put these Lego bricks together and you know the the openness of of uh, and the creativity that that developers can bring i think that's also a place where again the the traditional uh, financial system or traditional regulars it's very uncomfortable to think about like hey there's developers hacking together protocols that can do stuff with our with our money but it's also a big part of the promise here absolutely it, it is the future i mean you know when the again the internet exploded uh when the internet first became um, reaching a common public, um, uh, no one could have anticipated some of the developments that have come about. I remember uh, in the 1980s when someone who was developing one of the core technologies for the internet called asynchronous transfer mode told me uh, it, about its application and explained it will allow computers to talk to computers. My attitude, my, well, what good is that? Well, what good is that is the ability to, to, to plan a vacation, order a taxi cab, and, and, and all the, the ramifications of it today, the ability to gather information to communicate with people around the world. I don't think we yet can anticipate all the utilizations of digital money, yeah. but that can't, that shouldn't be the reason to stop us. That's got to be the reason to get us started. Exactly. Uh, I, yeah, completely agree. And I, 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 uh, Lots of good historical metaphors on that that, yeah. that should that should inform this and um, and the other reason you know the the real big reason is 
money is a carrier of values. M money convey, that's why we started by talking about mo money being a social construct. Societies imprint their values on money. You know, the dollar is attractive on a, to a global audience because there's a presumption that unless you're, you know, engaged in drug running or, or other illicit conduct, your activities with your dollar is, is your private activity. Yeah. Uh, it, it also carries the notion of free enterprise and the ability to, to assemble capital in a way that is most um, beneficial and, 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 and so, so free market economics. There's, there's, there's values built into a currency. And, and, and as China makes progress, tremendous progress in dig, building a digital RMB, there's also an expectation that their values will be in that. I don't think there's a broad yeah. expectation that a digital RMB would be free from government surveillance. Right. right. The, at, at heart, the reason why we need to be on the front edge of this technology is to make sure those values that our society holds dear are imprinted in this new form of money. That's yeah. why the conversation can't be confined to government alone. That's why it's got to be a broad conversation between the public and the private, because we've got to work out what are those values? How do we write them into the future of money in a way that is both useful for our society, but societies who aspire to some of the values of our society can then utilize that as well, as opposed to the alternative, which may not be an may not be aspirational values yeah. built into the di digital form of modern money. Yeah, I, 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 this it's a great concept of imprinting values. Uh, you know, e each of these tokens, uh, so to speak, carrying a value, and it, it speaks to, I think, the very profound um, ways in which digital currency uh, are are increasingly going to be viewed as uh, you know have, having geopolitical dimensions to them. Uh, I like to also say, you know, as as things like uh, you know fiat digital currencies take off, um, whether whether you know the private sector stuff that's today or future future uh, collaborations with central banks, you know, people around the world will be able to effectively vote for what economic system that they participate in with their smartphone. They can decide. They download a piece of software and decide what economic system am I going to participate in. And that has very profound geopolitical consequences. Uh, you know, it, it means that, you know, really the, the projection of the dollar, obviously everywhere is one thing, but also the projection of other major currencies. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on the, I mean, the geopolitical dimensions are very, very real here. I think, um, as I've noted, you know, with, uh, with the digital R&D, uh, I mean, technically just as a crypto based uh, asset, you know, really, and anyone with a, a smartphone theoretically would be able to have a wallet and uh, directly transact in RMB with uh, the People's Bank of China. Um, whether you're a business or an individual uh, in any part of the world where you're connected to the internet, and so that's what I call over the uh, over the top financial system. Just like we have over the top television delivery and we have over the top communications now of the internet, this is over the top monetary system, and it's sort of happening. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, very significant geopolitical kind of connotations here. And you're absolutely right. It is happening. I just saw some information in the last 24 hours that China says that they've now done over 1.3 million transactions, separate transactions, uh, aggregating a, over a billion RMB in value just through August of 2020 alone. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, we, you know, the Federal Reserve has got a, a dozen or more people working on this. Yeah. Um, uh, China's got, you know, tens of thousands 
of, of companies working on this with all their employee power and is already doing transactions. This is moving yeah, I mean, this, very, very rapidly. Comes, comes back to you know what's happening in the private sector as well, where we've seen. Uh, oh, you're right, I, and I don't want to dis. Yeah. I, I'm only referring to the Fed's action. Absolutely. We we should spend a minute talking about really. I, I don't want and any of your viewers to come away thinking there's not a lot of exciting innovation going on. It's just that, you know, the innovation is going on in the private sector. There's some things going on in the public sector and there, there's not this right. coming together. And that's really where right. we right. need to be done. But, well, but we got to make that great happen. Work and, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of firms uh, are doing some great work. The folks at Paxos, I met with them recently. They've got some, you know, there's a lot going on. Yeah, there is certainly, uh, certainly a lot going on. It's been, we've been seeing, you know, these dollarization themes, uh, the demand for digital dollars, very, you know, growing significantly. We're seeing the birth of internet-based interest rate markets, credit markets, other things that are, that are usually utilizing digital dollar, uh, you know, uh, digital currencies. Um, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been fascinating and, and the growth rates are, are really, really tremendous. Well, it's already, it, 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 stable coin industry is already solving uh, for problems. So, so in the foreign exchange industry, you know, the, the, the latency of settlements and, and the friction involved in that has been a long-term problem. Yeah. And, and, and um, uh, a number of stable coins are really providing an important utility role in both lowering cost and, and, and shortening time spans and, and that's a, a value proposition that, that's long been needed to be addressed. And, and here's this new technology addressing it. So, you know, it, we're, we're beyond the nascent stage. I mean, yeah, I things are really happening. They most certainly are. Um, I, I guess um, we're, we're kind of running up against time. I, I want to maybe end with just a, a, a few brief thoughts on kind of where this all goes. And, you know, w when I got started in, in, in building Circle, you know, one of the things that occurred to me was, you know, over time, maybe over 10 years, uh, and that was seven years ago, um, you know, th there would emerge, you know, real standards. Um, in the same way we have standards on the internet for, for content and data and communications, that th there would emerge standards. And, and there'd be standards for fiat digital currency. And that those standards could be adopted um, by many, many uh, uh, sovereigns. They could be adopted in the private sector. Um, and that you'd have these standards and you'd, you'd sort of get to this place where you'd have, you know, effectively instant value exchange from any reasonable, you know, fiat, digital, fiat currency, but represented as a digital currency, instantly swappable, effectively at no cost, instantly settleable, globally at no cost. And I actually think we're not too far off from, from things like that happening. And, um, you know, so one is that development of those standards. And, and I think that that can be something that the public sector and private sector work on together. I think, in fact, ultimately, it's critical that they do. But where does that, you know, where does that lead us? Does that lead us to a place in five years or 10 years where kind of we're all, all the economic actors in the world are saying, why don't we just build a synthetic global digital currency? Why, why, why are we doing, why, why are we having all these different, um, you know, fiat digital currency flying around? And even beyond that, what role could, uh, you know, a non-sovereign digital currency play in, in, a, in a basket that uh, forms a synthetic global digital currency? I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Fascinating. Well, so again, if you look at history, uh, there have been times when certain currencies reach a large portion, but not an exclusive portion of commerce. You know, before the euro, 
back in the 15th century, there was the, uh, Flor the, the Florin of, Flo of the city state of Florence, which was in a sense the first European wide mm -hmm. currency. But that lasted, you know, maybe 80 years to 100 years before you went back to more of a diverse array. Um, I think the last several generations have seen the dollar reach probably a historical peak as a yeah. world currency. And yet we may be actually seeing some of the receding of that as the U U US economy's you know, very glo dominant global role starts to recede and we see the rise of China and others. Right. So I, I think currencies ultimately, if they're sovereign currencies are tied to the economic straight strength of a nation. And I think it's probably more likely in history that you'll have different sovereign currencies tied to the economic strength of a nation wane and wax, you know, throughout human history. Um, uh, uh, look at, just look at the fortunes of the Euro. It, its fortunes have risen and fallen with the European economy. Um, uh, and I think that that's probably more the historical tie, mm -hmm. but, but look, I'm also an advocate for strengthening the U S economy in every way we can and strengthening our currency. I think that the world has been, uh, made better during the last 80 years or 70 years of the dollar's dominance than, than the alternative. If you, if you take the last three generations, more people have risen out of poverty worldwide than ever before in human history. And I think that's not just a coincidence. I think that's been something of a consequence of the dollar's role in global commerce. The fact that there's been a stable uh, 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 unit of account to price goods and services um, that it is, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's earmarked with those policy uh, and principles that I mentioned of, of, of free enterprise, of privacy, properly balanced against law enforcement interests and other values that are grafted into the dollar. I think that's been a net good. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I believe that it's a net good for the world if we can empower the dollar for more generations to come and not simply let it uh, decay and deteriorate like so much of our financial market infrastructure. Let's modernize it. Let's let's harness this new technology. Let's harness all the good work that's already being done in the private sector. And I think the dollar could exist alongside yeah. some of the payment functions that are being explored in stable coins, some of the, the, the convertibility functions in, in so many markets. I think that a healthy ecosystem would have give and take between a, a sovereign central bank digital currency and, and good, strong, stable coins in a global economy. So I think we can get this right, but we've got to, we've got to develop a, a, a national coming together, a consensus that the time to act is now. Well, Chris, uh, on that note, those are great con concluding thoughts. Um, wonderful conversation. Really a pleasure to have you uh, on, on the show today and looking forward to uh, continued conversations and collaboration. Great being with you, Jeremy. Let's do it again. All right, sounds good, Chris. So fascinating, of course, uh, really grateful to have Chris on the, on the show today. Um, you know, the, these issues, as you can see, are, are very profound. They impact the future of the global economy. They impact the future of the United States. They impact uh, so much of how society will organize itself uh, economically. So uh, re really a, a great pleasure. And we're gonna continue on this theme uh, next week. Uh, we're going to continue on this theme with uh, the, the two co-founding partners of Castle Island Ventures, Nick Carter and Matthew Walsh. They've been exploring uh, the very profound implications of what they're describing as crypto dollars, 
Um, and we're going to talk about their latest research in this field and many of the big picture global, social, political, and economic implications of crypto dollars. So it should be uh, a, a really, really enjoyable conversation with two very, very bright minds uh, in the space. So until next week, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you.